Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, hey, at some point today or tomorrow, you may be drawn to read the Christmas story from one of the Gospels in the Bible over in Matthew 1 or Luke 2, or maybe you'll, you'll look at a nativity scene and you'll consider the story of Christmas from the perspective of one of the original characters. Like, what was it like for the shepherds? Or what was it like for the wise men? Or what would it have been like to be Mary or Joseph and to receive this news or the innkeeper? But today what I want to do is I want us to, to consider the Christmas story from a different perspective altogether. What was Christmas like from heaven? So, so angels and angelic beings are all over the Christmas story from beginning to end. These are truly magnificent creatures that love and serve God and they have since the beginning of creation. And, and so I want to look at the Christmas account from their perspective. But before we do, I want to take you to a passage in the New Testament in 1 Peter that seems to suggest that there is something about the Christmas story that you and I have experienced, but that the angels never have. Curious? All right, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, it says this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So, so did you hear that at the very end? Another translation says, even angels long to look into these things. And so what's he talking about? What are the things that angels long to look into that you and I have already experienced? What is this knowledge that we have that the angels don't have? Well, this passage in 1 Peter seems to indicate that it is the knowledge of grace, that it's the experience of salvation. The angels of the Lord never experienced the cycle of sin and repentance and forgiveness. They've not experienced the depth of God's grace like we have. They've seen the effects of God's grace. They've seen the consequences of his grace, but they've never experienced the reality of the good news. And so this passage says that the curiosity of the heavenly beings is, is piqued when we talk about salvation because they've never experienced it themselves. It's like when you've gone on a vacation to a breathtaking destination, only to realize that when you look at your phone that your, your pictures are never going to do justice to what you just experienced. Like your friends and relatives back home, they're, they're going to have to go for themselves to really understand how beautiful it was. That's the way the angels experience grace. It's like a photograph that doesn't quite do justice to the real thing. And so today, I want to explore the coming of, of grace to the world. And, and what if we could look at the birth of Jesus from the perspective of heaven? Here's how I want to frame it. Let's look at four Christmas realities from heaven's perspective. Here's the first. Christmas changed the complexion of heaven. Think about it. Just because the Lord Jesus Christ was born in a manger does not mean that the manger was the beginning of his existence. No. Before he was conceived in the womb of, a virgin, of the Virgin Mary, the Bible tells us that he existed in heaven. In fact, his glory filled the heavens. John says at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the word, that's a, a title for Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God. And the Bible will go on to say that all things were created by him and for him. And that includes the angels. So just as man and woman were the pinnacle of God's earthly creation, so the angels are the pinnacle of God's heavenly creation. They were created for Christ. They were created by Christ. And now the creation of the angels is not something that we're, we're told much about. But this we can be sure of. 
At the moment of their creation, they were aware of the power and the majesty and the glory of Christ, their creator. Now remember, angels don't have the same abilities as God. In fact, the whole of the first chapter of the book of Hebrews is written to remind us of the great difference between angels and God. Angels, for example, don't know all things. Only God knows all things. Angels are not present everywhere. Only God is present everywhere. Angels are sent to specific places at specific times for specific tasks. They're also not all powerful. Only God is all powerful. So, so angels are servants to God with power to execute the will of God, but they're not all powerful. Now there's an interesting passage in Isaiah chapter 6 for the, the prophet Isaiah is, is given a glimpse of heaven. And he says, this is what I saw. I saw the Lord and, and, and he was seated on a throne. And in John's gospel, he, he tells us a little bit more about this uh, encounter. He says that what Isaiah saw was Jesus and his glory. And so he sees the Lord Jesus and his glory filling the heaven. And then Isaiah describes the angelic activity around the throne as angels are crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so before the Son of God ever entered our world, he was the very center of adoration and the worship of angels. And in all those ages before even this planet was created, the angels only knew the Son of God. They saw him in all his power. They saw him in all his glory. And so when Jesus left heaven and came to earth, like it changed everything, not just for earth, but for heaven. His de departure created a great void in heaven. And it probably left some angels scratching their heads. Like, Jesus, what is, what's he doing? Like, he's leaving his great and rightful throne to enter the world as a, as a baby? It just must have seemed too much to them, too high a price. They must have had a hunch that, that, that humans wouldn't get it right away, that they wouldn't realize or appreciate who they were dealing with. The angels probably quietly wondered if there was some other way to save the world. Couldn't someone else go? Isn't there someone further down the chain of command who could go to earth? Are people in, in all their flaws really worth the commitment that they're getting from heaven on this one? Does he really have to become one of them? Wouldn't it be more effective if he showed up in all of his splendor? You see, Christmas changed everything, not only on earth, but also in heaven. It would never be the same there following the great departure of Jesus. Now, because of this truth, I'd like to challenge you to reclaim the wonder of God's grace this Christmas. His incarnation must have left the angels shaking their heads, and it should leave us shaking our heads too. It is far too high a price to pay. Christ did not come for angels. He did not assume the form of an angel. His blood was not shed for angels. All of this was for us. It was for you. The writer of the Hebrews describes it this way. He says, For a little while he was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The gospel, this gospel, staggers heaven. And if it staggers the angels, why should any one of us be indifferent to the power of it? And if all of heaven should bow at the feet of Jesus Christ, why should any of us not do the same? And so the first Christmas reality here is that the incarnation, it changed the complexion of heaven. But here's the second thing I want you to see. Christmas demonstrated God's love for the underdog. So as you read the birth narratives in the Gospels, you can't help but conclude that, that though the world may be tilted toward the rich and powerful, God seems to favor the underdog. In fact, Mary said it this way in her Magnificat. 
He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Now, if you follow the movement of the angels in the months leading up to the birth of Christ, I mean, it, it reads like a who's who of the nobody's club. Okay, Gabriel and his angelic friends, they, they should have been more than a little worried with the kind of people they were appearing to. Uh, Gabriel appeared to an old washed up priest, Zechariah, and his barren wife, Elizabeth, and, and he tells them that they're gonna have a son, John the Baptist, who's gonna prepare the way for the Savior. And then he goes to a small and unexpected town in Nazareth, and he comes upon a very young girl who will not only carry the king of the universe in her womb, but, but she's also gonna be entrusted to parent him. Around this time, another angel appears to an ordinary guy named Joseph and tells him to, to hang in there with Mary. And, and, and believe it or not, she's telling the truth about this one. <laughs> and while it would have been appropriate for Jesus to be born in a palace in Rome or another major metropolis, Micah the prophet got word from heaven hundreds of years before Jesus' birth that God was thinking smaller. <laughs> he said, but you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler of all of Israel. And then there was no room in the inn, so the angelic audience gathers at a barn outside a small village and a cattle trough. And the angels are mobilized again to send out the grand invitation to the birth of the new king. And instead of going to rulers and leaders in high places, they go to misfits and castaways, the lowest members of the, on the totem pole in that society. And so shepherds and animals were the guests of honor at the birth of the new king of Israel. You can't read the Christmas story and follow the movements of the angels without realizing, again, that God loves the little guy. This theme would, would remain consistent through Jesus' life as well. His sensibilities were always drawn, drawn most deeply by the poor and the powerless and the oppressed and the underdogs. Today, theologians debate uh, the aptness of this phrase that says God's preferential option for the poor. And it's used as a way of describing God's concern for the underdog. Since God arranged the circumstances in which to be born on planet Earth without power, without wealth, without rights, without justice, like his preferential options speak for themselves. And it only makes sense that God would do it this way. He's the God who uses, you know, little boys and slingshots and oversized armor like David to bring down giants. And he's the one who uses young girls from no-name towns thrust into positions of royalty like Esther to, to risk her life to save a people. He's the one who used bumbling murderers like Moses to, to speak to kings on God's behalf and to lead an entire nation of people to freedom out of slavery. He's the one who, who used youngest children from the smallest families like Gideon who was found cowering on the, flesh, uh, the threshing floor of a wine press to become mighty warriors. He's the one who used persecutors of Christians like Paul uh, to the, be the greatest missionary that ever walked the earth. See, the movements of the angels show us God's love for the underdog. And it's a, it's a theme that continues through Scripture. Now, why is this important? Well, because it means that the Christmas story is about all of us. The Christmas story it has you in mind. It means that God is the God of the faithless, of the heartless, of the penniless, of the loveless, of the likes of you and me. And so if you've ever come face to face with your own shortcomings, if you've ever doubted your worthiness before an almighty God, if you've ever struggled with an addiction or you struggled with depression or anger or fear or doubt or relational difficulties or Family strife, if you've ever been in a hole so big that you thought you could never get out of it. The great news of Christmas is that God loves people just like you. So take hope. 
the angels would testify that God never chose the most likely candidates to write his story in the world. He's the God of the underdog. Here's the third reality I want you to see, that Christmas was a declaration of war. Eugene Peterson notes, this is not the nativity story we grew up with. Jesus' birth excites more than wonder, it excites evil. See, we tend to picture the birth of Jesus as a tranquil, quiet, peaceful event. Even our songs tell us that when Jesus awakes, no crying he makes. It's a silent night. It's a holy night, as we call it. But in the supernatural world, hell is unleashing its fury as God finally seeks to wrestle back creation from the power of evil. And so the birth of Jesus was the launch of God's offensive, his assault on the power of darkness. We can't deny that evil is clearly in our world. It's the kind of evil that inspires people to slaughter women and children in a rival nation just across the line of a border. It's the kind of evil that causes shootings in our schools and drugs in our neighborhoods and violence in our streets. It causes corporate greed that steps on innocent people and inequities all through our systems. So, so God's initial assault on evil was to bring his son into the world on that first Christmas. And this invasion would ultimately lead to the cross and to the empty tomb and to the second coming, which will bring the ultimate defeat of Satan and the works of evil. But the invasion started at Christmas. And God's angels are the warriors. As I said a couple weeks ago, angels aren't cute. They're not chubby little figurines on the shelf. They aren't strumming harps and wearing wings and a unitard. These are powerful and frightening warriors. And while some angels, like the ones we most often read about in the gospel narratives, were assigned to announce the birth of Christ and to begin the celebration, there were a whole other group, there were legions of angels that had an entirely different assignment on that first Christmas. See, the birth narrative in Revelation chapter 12 differs radically from the birth stories in the gospels. Revelation doesn't mention shepherds and wise men. Rather, it pictures a dragon leading a ferocious struggle in heaven between good and evil. It pulls back the curtain, as we've been doing all month. It pulls back the curtain between the visible world and the unseen world. Listen to Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was pregnant, and she was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head uh, heads seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now look at verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, there's the Christmas story like you've never heard it before. Right? The curtain is pulled back on what was really going on in heaven on that not-so-silent night. Now, there's obviously a lot of symbolism here. And I don't want to get too caught up in the details lest we miss the big picture. And so I'm going to just focus on some of the major aspects of this vision of John. So we can see Christmas through heaven's eyes. 
So, so we're introduced to a woman clothed with the sun. More than likely, we, we should identify this woman as the, the nation of Israel. The crown of 12 stars would then stand for the 12 tribes of Israel. And the focus would be on God using this nation of Israel to bring his son into the world. The, the second character in this vision is the child that's born to the woman. Clearly, this is a reference to the birth of Jesus Christ, God's son, the Messiah. Jesus is presented here as a, a king, a child, who's destined to rule the nations with an iron scepter. And the end of verse 5 skips from the birth of Jesus to his ascension when he, when he returned to heaven after his death and resurrection. And by mentioning the birth of Jesus and then the ascension of Jesus, John's kind of putting his entire life together. He's summarizing. But the third major character in this vision is a grotesque seven-headed dragon. And verse 9 identifies the symbolic dragon as a symbol for Satan. And, and when the dragon's tail brings down a third of the stars of heaven, this is probably a reference to one-third of the angels of heaven rebelling against God and following Satan. Now, here's what you need to understand. <laughs> when Jesus was born into the world, Satan was there waiting to destroy him. And so while shepherds are watching and angels are singing and wise men are worshiping, Satan is waiting to make his move. On earth, a baby was born. And as soon as that baby was born, Satan whispered into the ear of a paranoid king and a chase ensued. In heaven, the great invasion had begun, a daring raid by the ruler of the forces of good behind enemy lines into the seat of evil. Now, to catch the full backstory, this spiritual battle, to catch it, you really have to go back to a prophecy that was spoken by God himself way back at the very beginning of time and space as we know it to the Garden of Eden. Notice in that Revelation passage, the dragon is attached to the serpent. Satan in the Garden of Eden in the form of a serpent has just committed his heinous act of deception against mankind and tempted Adam and Eve into committing the first act of sin against the Most High God. And it comes time for the consequences. God is doling out the punishment to each party for their role in the crime. And in Genesis 3.15, God condemns the serpent, Satan, with these words. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first promise given after the fall of mankind. It's also the first gospel sermon ever preached on the face of the earth. Theologians call this the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. These words spoken by God contain the earliest promise of redemption in the Bible. Everything else in scripture flows from this one verse. Jesus came to overturn the curse of Genesis 3. Christ is in this little verse. He is the, the seed of the woman who would one day come to crush the serpent's ugly head. And in the process, his heel, you notice, would be bruised, which means his body would be broken on the cross. In short, this verse predicts that Jesus would win the ultimate victory over Satan, but would himself be wounded in the process. This prophecy seals the fate of Satan. Now, in some ways, the Garden of Eden marks Satan's finest moment. When he deceived Eve and Adam and chose to, uh, you know, to, to follow her, he, he wrecked God's plan and he gained the whole world for himself. And for a few short hours, Satan won the greatest battle, the, the great battle with God. But God would have the last word. And so as the curtains are pulled back in the heavenlies in Revelation 12, Satan now appearing as a very powerful red dragon with this ancient prophecy ringing in his ears, he prepares himself to intercept the seed of the woman right as he's born, because he realizes that the birth of the Messiah is the ultimate declaration of war against him and his kingdom. And that this child 
if he does what he's been prophesied to do. This child will lead to the crushing head blow that was predicted way back in the Garden of Eden. Here's what I want you to catch. I want this point to remind you that you're in a spiritual battle right now. So am I. You know, in our journey through the Gospel of Mark that we're doing at Grace, we've been calling it a cosmic conflict. There's more than meets the eye. Philip Yancey puts it best. He says, as a Christian, I believe that we live in parallel worlds. One world consists of hills and lakes and barns and politicians and shepherds watching their flocks by night. The other consists of angels and sinister forces and somewhere out there places called heaven and hell. And one night in the cold and in the dark, among the wrinkled hills of Bethlehem, those two worlds came together at a dramatic point of intersection. And the collision of those two worlds still has dramatic implications for us today because we're part of that struggle which means we must be ready for the extraordinary as well as the ordinary ways that the evil one works in our time. Don't be presumptuous as though demons are, are, are really weak and don't be anxious as though that they're, they're stronger than Jesus. The Bible says be filled with the Spirit. Be well armed with the promises of the Scriptures about the authority of Jesus Christ and about your rights as a child of God. Now, that's a good way to, to get rid of your last, you know, the last of your Christmas spirit, isn't it? Merry Christmas, and by the way, you have a powerful enemy in the form of a big red dragon who hates you, and he hates you because you love Jesus, whom he hates, and he hates you because he tried to destroy Jesus but failed spectacularly, and he's been kicked out of heaven, so now he's coming after you. Merry Christmas, <laughs> yeah, but that's where we find ourselves. And so, so let me just recap our four Christmas realities from heaven's perspective. Christmas changed the complexion of heaven. Christmas demonstrated God's love for the underdog. Christmas was a declaration of war. And here's number four. Christmas established Jesus Christ as mankind's rightful king. Listen to what great Gabriel announces to Mary uh, in Luke 1. 31 to 33, says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The angels had experienced Jesus as this king from the very beginning. And they knew full well who he was and that no earthly king could unseat him. They knew that in a humble little barn in Bethlehem lay the rightful ruler of the universe, the one who had crafted every human being and every animal in this story with his own hands, now tiny little hands. He had made it all. And so this knowledge makes the conflict that took place with King Herod almost comical if it wasn't so horrific. It's known as the slaughter of the innocents. Matthew tells us that when Herod learned Jesus had been born, he had all boys two years old and younger killed. Herod was afraid because he knew that he wasn't the rightful king and that Jesus was. And so he did what political leaders do when threatened and he tried to eliminate the competition. Herod, who was called the king of the Jews, enforced Roman rule at a local level. Well, a few years later, the, the Romans took over direct command of the southern province that encompassed Jerusalem. And, and the, the cruelest and most notorious of governors was a man named Pontius Pilate. And according to Luke, a new Herod named Herod Antipas and Pilate regarded each other as enemies until the, the day their paths crossed to determine the fate of Jesus. And on that day, they collaborated hoping to succeed where Herod the Great had failed. 
by disposing of this strange so-called Messiah and thus preserving their flimsy kingdom. But from beginning to end, the conflict between Rome and Jesus appeared to be completely one-sided. Rome had always had the upper hand. The execution of Jesus looked like it sealed the deal, like it put an end to any threat of this little upstart movement. Tyranny, it appeared, would win again. It occurred to no one that his stubborn followers just might outlast the Roman Empire, and we have. And every attempt by kings and their kingdoms, and every attempt by emperors and their empires to squash out the movement of Jesus has failed. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. The kingdom of Christ was firmly established at Christmas. My challenge to you this Christmas, 2023, is to find your way into the kingdom of God but by surrendering your life to King Jesus. The angels of heaven are, are, are fully aware of who we're dealing with here, and I pray that you would be too. Are you tired yet of trying to run your own kingdom? Are you tired yet of trying to play the games of the kingdoms of this world? His is an everlasting kingdom, and he is a faithful and generous king because he's made himself available to all. Some of you may, may remember the CNN anchor Larry King. He was once asked what historical character he would most like to interview. He said he'd like to interview Jesus. And when questioned about what, what he would like to ask Jesus in an interview, Larry King replied this way. He said, I'd like to ask him if, it, if he was really born of a virgin. And here's his reason. Because how he answered that question would define history for me. Larry King was right. Christmas changes everything. Let me wrap up today with this quote from J.B. Phillips. He provides an interesting glimpse into Christmas from heaven's perspective. In this account, he paints a picture of a senior angel who's showing a young kind of intern angel around the splendors of the universe. And so they view the whirling galaxies and the blazing suns and they flit across the infinite distances of space until at last they enter one particular galaxy of 500 billion stars. And as the two of them draw near to the star, which we call our sun, and to its circling planets, the senior angel points to a small and rather insignificant little sphere turning very slowly on its axis. It looked as dull and dirty as a tennis ball to the little angel, whose mind was filled with the size and glory of what he had just seen in the rest of the universe. I want you to watch that one particularly, said the senior angel, pointing with his finger. Well, it looks very small and dirty to me, said the little angel. What's special about that one? Picture the images beamed back to Earth from those early Apollo astronauts who described our planet as whole and round and beautiful and small. A blue, green, and tan globe suspended in space. Jim Lovell, reflecting on the scene later, would say it this way. He said it was just another body, really, about four times bigger than the moon. But it held all the hope and all the life, and all the things that the crew of Apollo 8 knew and loved. It was the most beautiful thing there was to see in all the heavens. That was the viewpoint of a human being. To the little angel, though, Earth did not seem so impressive. And so he listened in stunned disbelief as the senior angel told him that this planet, small and insignificant and not overly clean, was the renowned visited planet. Do you mean that our great and glorious prince went down in person to that fifth-rate little ball? Why should he do a thing like that? The little angel's face wrinkled in disgust. 
Do you mean to tell me, he said, that, that he stooped so low as to become one of those creeping, crawling creatures on that floating ball? I do, said the senior angel, and I don't think he would like you to call them creeping, crawling creatures in that tone of voice. For strange as it may seem to us, he loves them. He went down to visit them, to lift them up to become like him. The little angel looked blank. Such a thought was almost beyond his comprehension. See, we know something the angels don't. It's something even they long to look into. It's the grace and the salvation of a God who rescued us from our sins. I pray that you'd experience the depth of that truth this Christmas. I love you guys. Merry Christmas.